Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I sat down with Sharon O'Brien, a researcher in translation and specifically machine translation from Dublin City University, which has some research and teaching partnerships with ASU. We talked with Sharon about the future of machine translation and how does that translate, for lack of a better term, to the future of work in the profession of translation and where are some of the lines between translation and interpretation. As always, we barely scratched the surface, so we hope that we'll be able to connect back up with Sharon because we didn't even get to a whole host of work that she's doing around crisis and emergency translation. So, so interesting. Before we get started, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here with us at Future Out Loud. If you're not already subscribed to the Future Out Loud podcast, we really suggest that you do that in a place like iTunes Podcast Store or Twitter. No, sorry, not Twitter um, or Stitcher or uh, SoundCloud. Or you can look at our website, futureoutloud.org. If you are so inclined, you could tell your friends about the Future Out Loud podcast. We'd love to hear what they have to say and what you have to say too. And that you can do on Twitter. You can tweet at us at Future Out Loud, or you can leave us a message on our Facebook page, Future Out Loud. As always, thank you for listening. And now on with Sharon O'Brien. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Heather. Thank you for being with us all the way from Dublin. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes. So, uh, Andrew, you brought us together for this conversation. I did, Um, yes. So, um, and the the point of connection was machine translation. That's um, right. Which, actually, before I met Sharon just a week or so ago, I had no idea what was going on in this area. So we should probably start with you telling us about why machine translation is interesting. Okay, so um, so this is something that I work on from the point of view of um, the people who use the output from machine translation. Right. So and, and we should be clear, this is translating language. Exactly. Yes. So this is translating from, say, English into Spanish or French into Chinese. This is um, machine translation, but machine translation specifically is when the computer does the translation Mm -hmm. and it gives you an output. Let's say we go from English into Spanish. It produces something that is like a draft of uh, a Mm -hmm. Spanish translation, which normally then requires some cleanup by a human. And normally that human is a professional translator. Okay. Right, right. But when you say normally, does that mean that we're heading towards a point where maybe we won't need the humans? Well, so some uh, organizations that have been uh, researching and using machine translation for quite a while now have started to publish what we call raw machine translation online. Right. Oh, okay. Um, so Microsoft do that, for example, for some of their online help articles, but they will always put a disclaimer mm-hmm. um, uh-huh. with the, uh, the the output to say this is raw machine translation. There may be some issues, mm-hmm. um, so treat with caution, mm-hmm. etc. Um, but if they want very high quality, they will still always go to right, the translator right. to edit. Things. So, so what fascinated me 
at least to start with when we were talking is um, so I use occasionally Google Translate mm -hmm. and so to me this didn't seem to be sort of unusual having some computer translate stuff um, but of course that's just me fiddling around if you mm -hmm. go to any sort of formal setting mm -hmm. so if you've got negotiations or something yep. uh, it's a totally different kettle of fish that's right um, yeah. and it, it blew me away when you mentioned that the professional translators didn't really seem to be taking it seriously that computers are catching up with what they can do oh. yeah so this, this is something that we've been struggling with quite a bit both um, in the profession so those who are working as translators and I should qualify this as uh, those people who work with written text yes that was my question mm -hmm. was is it written text or spoken text so, so for the moment yeah. it's written yes. but of course you can see uh, that very soon it might also be impacting on spoken translation mm -hmm. sure um, but when we talk about spoken translation in our domain, we talk about interpreting. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of the work that we've done um, has been around translation, so written translation. Mm -hmm. And translators, well, the profession has become very technologized. Mm -hmm. uh, from the mid-90s onwards, um, translators who worked in domains where you had a lot of translation to do, so very high volume, um, quite... Um, repetitive content mm -hmm. uh, so um, Microsoft won't mind me saying like their online <laughs> help <laughs> yes right. um, so they started using uh, computer-aided translation tools okay. mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the introduction of those tools was quite difficult mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. professional translators because before that they were just using Microsoft Word mm -hmm. right and if an update came in it was uh, compare and cut and paste manually okay, okay right. so um, the computer-aided translation tools took that away, so it created a database of what was already translated, and then mm -hmm. that automatically got leveraged. But um, machine translation, although that's been ticking along since the at least the early 60s, is not something that uh, has had an impact on mm -hmm. professional translation until, I would say, about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what happened then was we had um, data-driven approaches to machine translation. So beforehand, it was basically rules-based approaches right. where you had computational linguists who were developing rules mm -hmm. for specific language pairs. Mm -hmm. That could take up to two or more years to develop uh, one right. language direction. Right. With the statistical uh, probability-based introduction of machine translation, mm -hmm. data-driven, um, things changed and the quality that the machine could produce for some language pairs mm -hmm. was increased. So, so then is this um, sort of tying in with machine learning where machines yes. are exposed to a huge data set mm -hmm. and they exactly. learn from it? Yes. And the interesting thing is that that data set is actually created by the human translators who, okay. were, <laughs> who have see. created the translation memories right, right. to feed mm -hmm. the machine. So the okay. machines are learning from the human translators fast. Exactly. Yes. exactly. And you said in some language pairs. Yes. So there are so English to Spanish may by virtue of how machine learning tends to work may work better than say Gaelic to Mandarin. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so that that's one thing that influences it. Um, the language pair, the amount of data that you have for that particular language mm -hmm. pair and how close the languages are to each other. Uh -huh. So if you go from Gaelic to Mandarin, very, very, very different, different languages. Um, so that would be very difficult. And uh, we don't have a lot of data, I presume, from Gaelic to Mandarin. So mm -hmm. the machine learning wouldn't do very well on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you also have languages like Finnish and mm -hmm. Hungarian that are very inflected, so yes. morphologically. 
um, and they don't do so well, uh, or haven't at least, compared to its Spanish, French, German, sure. Portuguese, for example, okay. um, uh, in the past. So, I mean, you mentioned that these are all based on a, a large data set which comes from human translators. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm guessing that increasingly it's possible to create um, sort of machine learning agents or algorithms that can actually begin to pull stuff off, off the web and, and find really diverse sources. I mean, do you see any of that happening at all? It's almost like sort of machines that are trained to teach themselves. Um, yeah, so I haven't seen anything uh, about that, I think, so far. But uh, most of the time, well, they are certainly, they're crawling the web right. for data. Mm -hmm. okay. And one thing that plays a role here is not just the bilingual data but also monolingual data mm -hmm. um, so when they are um, uh, creating models for translation they're also looking for monolingual target language data okay, so if yes. we're going yep. into Spanish they will look for monolingual Spanish mm -hmm. data mm -hmm. to help improve how the Spanish sounds right yes. so I yeah. guess they are crawling for all sorts of data right yes. right that will right. Help. yeah right okay. right and then I but then getting back to the actual human translators um, and again, this really fascinated me where you were saying that within this community, they're so sure of the uniqueness that they bring to the process mm -hmm. that um, many people don't actually believe a computer could actually replace them. That's right, yeah. So so this is the struggle that we have, really. Mm -hmm. So there are some professional translators who have embraced machine translation. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, those would be the very, I think, tech-savvy mm -hmm. uh, translators. Um, there are some who have mm, somewhat forcibly embraced machine translation. Okay. <laughs> what, so, what do you mean by that? Well, <laughs> basically, um, you have um, a chain where you have the large organizations who want to have their material translated. Mm -hmm. They deal with multiple service providers. Mm -hmm. The service providers um, mostly outsource their translation. Mm -hmm. So uh, the service providers are told by uh, the large organizations, we want you to be more efficient right. okay. uh, and reduce the cost. Uh, we want you to use machine translation. Yep. Okay. So the service providers then give the machine translation output to the translators. Mm -hmm. And in the past, this was done without any consultation or negotiation. Mm -hmm. So as a translator, you were working probably from home. Mm -hmm. uh, suddenly you were told, fix this. Yes, <laughs> got right. it, got it. And the most of the reaction would be, I could do this better and I could do it faster mm -hmm. by myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, we've done quite a bit of research around that question. Can you do it better? Can you do it faster? Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we see is that there's a perception that you can do it faster. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it from an empirical perspective, you do not necessarily uh, go faster on your own. In right. fact, the machine translation output does help you. So it's in terms these of cognitive biases kicking in where uh, people's yes. perceptions of what they can do actually doesn't necessarily match reality. Absolutely. Uh, but the, the translators do think, well, I could certainly do it better. But right. again, we've looked at quality um, and measurements of quality. And again, it's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. But there is a cognitive clash going on there, uh -huh. mm -hmm. I think, uh, between the translator and the machine, where the translators feel that they're being constrained yes. or restricted. Yes. But, and, the, and, and one thing that comes out again and again is um, it restricts my creativity. Right, uh -huh. right. Mm. So I talk about that because that must 
tie into what you consider to be a, a better or not so good translation because it's not just word for word translation it's actually translating the meaning and the intent yeah so yeah. there are lots of contradictions i think in the industry around this so um a machine translation has been deployed primarily by the i would say the it industry mm -hmm. maybe a little bit about the, the medical industry yes. Um, so these are industries that have very high volumes mm -hmm. and quite a lot of repetition. Um, within that, especially in the software part of it, we have a whole industry called localization. Okay. Um, there's a lot of debate about what is localization, is it the same as translation or not? I won't bore you with that. <laughs> okay. But basically localization by definition means um, translating and adapting. Yeah, for the local mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. market. Okay. Right, I right. see. Okay. okay. So, so you bring a bit of yourself to this. You bring, you bring yeah. and you know your mm -hmm. local community. Mm -hmm. You know um, yes. that if it's, you know, if you're translating for um, Latin American Spanish, for, for a, um, a Chilean audience, it might be different from another market. Okay. So that's the essence of localization. However, then within localization, um, the a lot of the companies will say, we don't need you to be creative, just mm -hmm. get the job done. Yes. Right, um, right. You know, if, if it's an online help article, mm -hmm. don't be inventive, just <laughs> mm -hmm. reuse right. the translation that was done last week, right, right, last yes. year. Yes. So there's a lot of um, kind of contradiction, I think. Right, mm -hmm. um, right, But right. the translators do feel, uh, oh, I'm being constrained. I have mm -hmm. to reuse this translation mm -hmm. that was created by somebody else, right, yes. or that right. was created by the machine, and look, there are errors in it, which I have to fix. Mm -hmm. And I didn't train to be a translator in yeah. order to fix errors that come from the machine. Right, right, right. So you can understand, and if you're just doing something like translating sort of help manuals or something, mm -hmm. um, you can probably get away without too much creativity or, or sort of insight mm. or interpretation. But you put that into a medical situation. So yes. I mean, for instance, you look at trying to convey critical information across mm -hmm. different, um, different languages. Surely that then becomes a completely different situation where the, the translator has got to understand something about the nuance and the, the, yeah. the intent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, of course, everything is very context dependent. Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, I think that's where translators uh, feel that they play a very important role and, and this is what we teach also when we're teaching uh, the translation students. You have to know what the message of the text is and who the target audience uh -huh. was and you have to understand who the target audience is for your translated text and change accordingly. Right. And right. Um, and that's where they have the expertise. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. um, so if it comes to something that definitely needs nuance or needs to be altered depending on the context or whoever is the recipient, mm -hmm. the human probably plays a very important role there, okay. and the machine does not yet have. Right, right. I think. Yes. <laughs> so, sorry, from your perspective, yeah. So, how comfortable would you be with a machine translating? Well, you know, we do use machine translation sometimes when we don't have access to an interpreter. Yeah. Now, of course, there's a significant industry in medical interpretation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know one of my questions for you is where does the line where's the line placed between translation and interpretation mm -hmm. and I suspect the answer is not simply 
written versus spoken text. Mm -hmm. There's more to it than that. Yeah, definitely more to it, I think. Um, so we used to have very distinct lines between mm -hmm. interpreting and translation. And if you trained as one, you probably didn't um, mm -hmm. uh, have a, a profession as another. Okay. Um, However, these days we know that, for example, interpreters in medical scenarios, mm -hmm. in legal scenarios, are also asked to translate text, okay, yes. and translators are sometimes asked also to interpret. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so it really depends on what is required at that particular point in time. Translators, or rather interpreters, would say that um, a lot of what they do requires a lot of um, uh, nuance, mm -hmm. it's context dependent. Mm -hmm. um, we had a discussion at a panel that we organized recently about this and how machines might not take over from interpreters because they also have to look at nonverbal communication. Yes, yes. Mm. Um, if the language has honorifics, like in Japanese, for yes. example, it has to take care of that. Tone of voice, mm -hmm. pauses, hesitations, which also communicate. So, I, mm -hmm. so listening to this, I mean, I, it takes me straight to, to where current technology is going mm -hmm. in terms of being able to monitor people's micro expressions and be able to interpret them. Mm -hmm. um, and it strikes me we can't be that far away from machines that are smart enough to be able to um, put a lot of this nuance into mm -hmm. um, either interpretation or translation. And mm -hmm. I guess as soon as you're looking at the machine, you're going to be merging those two areas because to the machine, as soon as anything, whether it's either written or, or verbal, is translated into ones and zeros, mm -hmm. it's just dealing with the data set. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know. Can you imagine a scenario where the machine is maybe monitoring, um, you know, uh, doing a galvanic skin test or EEG? So, so or it's funny yes. you should mention yes. this. I remember the proposal we put together, it must be a, a year or so ago now, with medical yes. sort of scribe assists, mm -hmm. where we mm -hmm. were sort of speculating that if you actually had a, a, an AI robot, Bots mm -hmm. in a consultation, mm -hmm. they could pick up on signals that a human couldn't, whether that's right. micro expressions, whether it's a physiological expression, right. and actually exactly. use those as part of its interpretation yes. of what was going on. Yeah, I mean, that would be really interesting. So, mm -hmm. going back to the training that we give translators, we say, you know, think about your target audience, right. think right. about the function of the communication, yes. and transfer that into uh, your new target audience mm -hmm. and your new function. Um, but of course, they're surmising to some extent uh -huh. what was the function of the text because they don't yes. usually have access to the author. Right. right. And the the intention there might be several intentions in uh -huh. a text uh, depending on who's reading it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to transfer that into who will the target audience be here and what might their needs be. And right. there could be several of those. So you're you're juggling with all of this. So yes. That's data, I suppose. Right, it's, it of is. It's yes, data. yes, yes. Um, it's 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 them computing a model of who who was it for, who will uh -huh. it be for. Uh -huh. Right, And right. so what we're talking about maybe is the machine uh, doing that yes. to some extent and possibly changing the output of the translation. Yes. And this to me is where it gets really interesting. Mm. So so at the moment, um, so now we're sort of looking at this sort of morphed interpretation translation role, but but a right. human there, the human brings their interpretation to what happens. So yes. if you've got them as the mediator between two others who don't understand their languages, mm -hmm. that translator interpreter brings a huge amount to mm -hmm. that that conversation and yes. the outcomes of that. That's now true. if you take those away and put a, a, an intelligent machine there, 
that machine now has control right. over what happens it's, in that conversation. Yes, right. Yes, that's right. And so that raises the um, you know the question of ethics, which right. is right. Uh, something that has only really recently started to be right. um, considered in machine translation mm -hmm. from all sorts of um, perspectives. So that sort of situation and the ethics involved, well, what if the robot gets it wrong? Right, Seriously right. wrong. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, mm -hmm. so there's an ethical dimension there. Um, what about the ethics of using um, human-produced data to some extent to replace the humans mm -hmm. so the, uh, yes ethical yes. dimension as well yes. doing yourself half the job well exactly. and there's quite I have a student who's working on the ethical dimensions of uh, translators well or interpreters really mm -hmm. in hospital in a hospital okay. setting and many many ethical conundrums mm -hmm. arise with regard to you know what should they be translating? Right. Is there text that ought to be translated? Is there text that the interpreter may understand needs to be inflected differently mm -hmm. in order to find meaning mm. with the recipient? Mm -hmm. What happens when the, um, oh gosh, when a family member, you know, instructs an interpreter to not translate something yeah. for a patient. Right. Yeah. And what happens when um, a translation, what happens, for example, when a law enforcement officer asks for interpretation? Is the mm -hmm. translator or is the interpreter bound to that? Right. I mean, so, so many questions. But that's on the fly interpreting, yes. not... Yeah. translation of written text but, as you but, but even with translation uh, there must be a, a code of ethics or a code of conduct mm -hmm. about who the translator is responsible to oh yeah so we have a, a whole body of theoretical literature on right. this about the translator as and the interpreter mm -hmm. as the neutral bridge mm -hmm. yes. Um, yes. Uh, who the um, translator has allegiance to is it the mm -hmm. source of the target so yep. we have yes. a, you know the slave and master type metaphor mm -hmm. as well yeah um, so there are there are uh, yeah and uh, so yeah do you is your allegiance with the source text and the source message right. I'm transferring that or is your allegiance to the new reader of mm -hmm. the text um, right so there there are, there are so you know. so then where are the machine ethics when, when you yes. replace them yes. with a machine yeah. I mean, who sort of codes that that sort of ethical sort of set of, of requirements that's, yes well I think that's a really good question I don't think we've really come to um, agreements on ethical mm -hmm. principles for human translation in <laughs> right. The first right right yes. Um, we still have a lot of issues and I think the medical interpreting setting is probably the one that's the the real test case yes. for the ethical um, dilemmas. Um, also, for example, you might have come across this, Heather, where people sometimes use children as interpreters. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Very common yeah. here in the desert southwest. Yeah. Yes. So if we haven't solved the ethical problems with the human transition, right. um, it might be some time perhaps <laughs> before we, we do that if we put right. a machine in the mix. Or maybe it takes away. Possibly Could some be. of the problems. Uh, uh, though, to be honest, if you've got a, um, a machine translator that is made by a particular corporation that has a vested interest in a mm -hmm. transaction, yes. you've got to ask sort of how it's going to sort of get Very in there. True. Now, in present translations, is there some kind of metadata that suggests whether 
this was a machine translation, mm -hmm. and if so, what was the software that was used, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to a human translation? Does that exist? In um, that's a really good question. So it, it depends on um, what version of the text you're dealing with. Okay. So the final product that is published usually mm -hmm. is not um, nuanced one way or another for whether okay. it was a human translator or a machine translation, except mm -hmm. in the case um, that I, the example I quoted of Microsoft, yes. um, where they will um, give you a disclaimer. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, when the translator is working with the text, mm -hmm. um, at the moment we have a scenario where we have like two technologies merging. So we have the uh, translation memory tools, which are the databases basically, mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. usually human translation. Mm -hmm. And in there you have metadata, which tells you um, which of your colleagues created the translation for oh, a previous okay. sentence. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we have interesting um, research on that where we can see that there are different levels of trust, yes. depending whether that's a colleague that you know very well or right. a freelancer that you've never heard uh -huh. of, yep. etc. Uh -huh. um, then if, uh, now, so then now we also have machine translation being automatically suggested within these tools mm -hmm. for the translators. And it will be uh, identified that this comes from machine translation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, you probably won't know unless your service provider has told you which machine translation system that okay. is. Right. Okay. Right. Or it could be, uh, you might get suggestions from two or possibly more machine translation Interesting. systems. Interesting. Um, but so transparency is very difficult to accomplish here. It is. And okay. then you, even if you know what the machine translation system is, you don't know uh, how it's been trained mm -hmm. or what data mm -hmm. is used right, to train right, it, right. unless you were a part right. of that exercise. But, okay. but on top of that, I get the impression that this is a train that's rapidly leaving the station. Mm -hmm. um, so the technologies are now developing a pace where mm -hmm. we're going to have very sophisticated machine translation without mm -hmm. people actually thinking through how do we do this responsibly. Right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and I, I was telling Andrew when we first met that um, we, uh, a, a collaborator of mine um, in the National Research Council of Canada um, mm -hmm. and I, we co-organized this panel recently at one of the machine translation conferences. Um, trying to raise some of these questions. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, what are the responsibilities of the developers? Um, does it matter how your machine translation system might get deployed? Mm -hmm. um, should we be watermarking machine translation right, so right. that mm -hmm. we know it's machine translation? Interesting. Um, do we have a responsibility to professional translators? Yeah. And what is that? And right, how can we right. train them so that maybe if they are going to be replaced in certain circumstances, mm -hmm. what are the other types of translation they could be doing and we could be training them for? Right. Okay. Um, so, so we're trying to raise these questions. And interestingly, uh, yesterday I got an email um, that um, was about, I won't mention which organization this was because it may not be absolutely correct. Okay. But the news was that somebody had been arrested because of a uh, mistranslation via machine translation system on social media. Wow. Oh, interesting. Right. So these uh, questions about responsibility. Right. And, and, yes, and yes. to be clear, um, the, the arrest was because of uh, misinterpretation of information or they were responsible? The MT system had mistranslated quite severely a uh, posting that uh, this person had put online. Ah, uh -huh. right. Okay. Yes. So it was a, an online social media. It was flagged up as right. 
and yes, so he, yeah. he it, it, it had mistranslated what he said, and he was consequently um, arrested. Oh wow! Mm. Yeah, so there are real world consequences. There are, yes. there certainly yes. are. Yes. yes, just a few, just a few. <laughs> right, right. And then I think that just the way that the world is seeming to trend away from written word in many cases mm -hmm. to spoken word, mm -hmm. podcast case in point, mm -hmm. that the work of translating may, I don't know, merge more into that world of what we think of as interpreting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that becomes very, very tricky. Yeah. One of the things that I think is so interesting about interpreting is uh, comes to sign language interpreting, mm -hmm. where the different levels of animatedness, I'm sure yes. there are other words, and this exposes my many ignorances about interpretation. <laughs> um, does that factor into translation? In the in the written word, oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I, I suppose you could say it does in in if you look at choice of word and expression uh -huh, uh -huh. and whether something is more literally associated with the original mm -hmm. text or ad adapted yes. to suit the target audience. Yes. So going back to this idea of localization. Yes. Maybe that's um, a type of animation okay. that you could see in text. As, as though presumably mm -hmm. this is similar to if you're translating novels or sort of mm -hmm. maybe ancient mm -hmm. texts yes. where somehow you've got to sort of capture the essence of what the author was mm -hmm. trying to yeah, convey. Yeah, I think of that with ancient like Aramaic that, texts. That's what I was yeah. thinking or, or, yeah. or ancient Greek where yes, you, yes. you can't just do it word for word. You've no. actually got to work mm -hmm. out what it is they're trying to express. Yeah, I suppose yeah. there are different types of translations then. Mm -hmm. You might have a, a sort of a functional translation that um, tries to demonstrate what the original message or text said. Right. Yes. Um, but you, 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 your function of your translation there is to try and um, illuminate the original text. Yes. Right. Or right. you could have what we would call a more communicative translation, which almost transforms. It's a mm -hmm. bit like, mm -hmm. you know, taking maybe a, a novel and turning it into a um, a play. Mm -hmm. Okay. So okay. you're almost yes. changing the genre of the text. Yes. Um, now, one of the things that you mentioned was, and I can't remember whether this was before we turned on the recorder or not, <laughs> um, but the concern that machine translation will put interpreters and translators out of business. Yeah. I mean, does are we looking at translation as becoming a you know pre-21st <laughs> century uh, mm. career whereas mm. the the 21st century jobs that we talk about are are mm. something different and given over to machines like what do you think um i think that that's the question <laughs> okay really for especially for people who are working in academia training translators researching mm -hmm. translation mm -hmm. and for the profession itself um are we looking at uh, eventual obsolescence mm -hmm. if the machines get so good mm -hmm. um, or what aspects are there of um, translation that will that humans will always do better right mm -hmm. right and we had a, a tweet uh, only yesterday from a commentator who's very well known in our area who said that we will not be replaced like the lawyers uh, uh -huh. and the doctors because um, 
language is what defines us. Communication I, is what defines us. I find that us. so interesting because I suspect a lawyer would say, actually, what I do is I translate text mm -hmm. embedded in the law mm. yes. into different situations. And yes. they probably see it very, very similarly. Mm. Yes, yes, exactly. Mm. Yes. Exactly. So this is a question I'm struggling with all the time. So right. what should we be teaching our, our, our students in the next mm -hmm. five to ten years? I, mm -hmm. Coding is the answer. <laughs> so, oh, no. yeah. well, but I think it gets to the notion of we, you know, there's quite a lot of um, there's quite a lot of agita around the idea of um, robots replacing human mm -hmm. workers. Um, but it seems to me that the opportunity is to think about how robots can make human work Better. That's right, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. So Not they replace, augment rather than yes. Exactly. Right. And, you know, interestingly, that was one of the questions that we asked our panel recently. Mm -hmm. Can machine translation augment human translation work? Mm -hmm. And um, none of them really addressed that question. Mm -hmm. um, I think the answer is yes. Um, I don't know how we can make this, you know, happen for, for sure, but certainly mm -hmm. interviewing translators, we have seen them say, um, you know, five years ago, I hated using this machine translation yes. system. Now I turn it on in the morning and it's like my coffee. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I need to see it for a couple of hours in the morning. It uh -huh. stimulates me. It maybe um, makes a suggestion that I would not use, but it helps me think of what I would use instead. Right. Very interesting. Right. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So, and then they talk about turning it off. <laughs> Oh, right. very interesting. Yeah, so once they're going, just that little boost. Yeah, yeah. Or, or you know, might be I need it in the afternoon, but I. And then they also talk about needing it for certain types of texts uh -huh. and not others. Mm -hmm. Okay, but they don't agree. Yep. You know, so very one person would say I would never use it for a press release. Uh huh. Right. Okay. And the other person would say I always use it for a press but release. You very can you can actually imagine if you had a learning machine translation system you could develop a very close bond with it especially if mm -hmm. it adapted to your style so yes. now you've got a partnership okay. between you yeah. and the machine mm -hmm. ah so um yes we we have thought about that as well right. I, I, i've written a chapter on this uh, hopefully soon to be published okay and this is about the idea of personalizing the, right the mm -hmm. system um and i think this is how we certainly would make machine translation more acceptable mm -hmm. uh -huh. Um, at the moment, it's really pushed down. Mm -hmm. um, you mm -hmm. will use this. Mm -hmm. We don't really care if it's got really bad output. You just yeah. fix it. We think you're going to be faster. Well, and by the way, we're going to pay you a lot less money right. uh -huh. for uh -huh. dealing with this right. um, these errors. Um, whereas there have been some people campaigning for an idea that you uh, on your desktop, you can train your own system. Mm -hmm. And it's tuned to your own texts and domain that you work yes. with primarily. Yes. And you can set thresholds. Uh -huh. So, you know, you can say, no, that's really crap. I don't want to see anything that's really that bad. Yeah. Mm. Um, only show me something that's this high okay. for this particular context. Okay. But if it's a, say, a domain I haven't worked in before, mm -hmm. I might need a little bit more stimulus. Right. Yes. Um, show me something that's a little bit lower in quality. Very um, interesting. Yeah. So I think that the developers should start looking at mm -hmm. that. But mm -hmm. they haven't really, um, I, I'm quite critical of, uh, of them in this <laughs> respect, mm -hmm. they really haven't considered their users yes got it yeah. yeah all right so it sounds like that's the place maybe mm -hmm. that's where the work must be done mm -hmm. is having developers think about not replacing the end users but augmenting the end users and really what are the needs mm -hmm. who are the end users and maybe the the idea of who are the end users needs to take a step back from being everybody to being mm -hmm. 
machine or to being translators. Yes, yeah. professionals. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Sharon, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. That was great. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Esmeralda Parker is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.